The rest of you can't turn your Bibles to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19. And uh, we're uh, kind of wrapping up our series on remembering the church this morning. And then next week we'll kind of re-pick up where we left off. We ended 1 Samuel right before Easter. And we're going to pick up in 2 Samuel and go through that this summer. Uh, So uh, we'll start off in 2 Samuel 1 with David hearing that Saul is dead and uh, just uh, the false claim of loyalty to David that came through that, and talk about what that means even for us today. But we are in Leviticus 19, which is kind of an interesting passage to go to when you're talking about caring, especially caring in the church. But uh, Chris put me onto this, and, and the more I looked at it, the more I'm like, yes, this works really well as we talk about caring and what it looks like. Um, and I was at, I don't know but if you've been driving around Ames much, but there's a lot of different things going on with traffic, right? We're kind of back into, that just uh, it goes like from winter to spring to traffic season, right? In a sense, it's like, yeah, that's the way it goes. But so I was approaching a, a light on Duff Avenue this week where um, they were working on it. And of course, they had this uh, construction guy out there directing traffic because the light was out. You don't understand what I'm saying? And so uh, he's waving people on or stopping people. And he wasn't, you know, he's not like a police officer who's maybe trained or at least does it more often. So yeah, I really had to pay attention. I was like, man, he could be in trouble just in, in how he's directing people and making sure that everything goes right. But um, this, this morning, we want to look at caring from the perspective of uh, how does this work? Like, what, how does God direct us in caring? And how, because sometimes I think we get confused about what it looks like, what it means, how, 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 do, you, how do you know where to go and what it looks like to really care for, for people in different situations. And uh, so we're going to look at starting at Leviticus 19 in this, in this, and I'm going to start at the Leviticus 19 verse 1 and read through verse 18, and then help us to understand where we're at in the story, so to speak. But let's just read Leviticus 19 and verse 1. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten that same day you, you offer it on the, or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted." And everyone who eats it shall eat, bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely. You shall not live, lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. 
The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the, the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so we see here in Leviticus 19, that famous phrase that Jesus used and others used to talk about summarizing law to saying, love your neighbor as yourself. It's repeated one more time in verse 33, actually, where it says, when a sojourner sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the Lord, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as, a, as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I I'm the Lord your God. See you there. Again, loving your neighbor as yourself, loving the stranger as yourself, is, is this kind of this key idea of when you seek to, to care, you, you have to consider yourself in the process. How would I want to be treated? Which is exactly what Christ said in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, right? But, but to get a better understanding of what we're talking about here, we have to understand where we are in the story of the Pentateuch and is and here in the story of Leviticus. You see, it sounds a lot, if you think about it, it sounds a lot like the Ten Commandments. He's like saying, hey, I'm the Lord your God. Here, do this, do this, do this. Remember the Sabbath, honor your parents. He's, he's repeating a lot of those things. And he's repeating those things because in the story, it started way back at Mount Sinai. In the story, uh, the people of Israel came to Mount Sinai and they said, okay, Moses, we want to we enter into a covenant with God. We want to we wanna make this work. And, and so God like, laid out the Ten Commandments and said, you're my people, do these things. And Moses went up on the mountain, is writing down what God said. And uh, while he's doing it, the people are saying to, to Aaron, hey, Moses is taking too long. Maybe he died up there. Who knows? Um, we need to worship God because obviously God could kill us at any time. So let's worship God. Can you make us a God that we can worship? And so he made the golden calf and brought it to the people and they started worshiping. Moses comes down from the mountain, right? Throws down the tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. And, and it's like, what are you doing? Right? And that wasn't the only time that Israel messed up once they were saying, we want to enter into a covenant with God. We want to follow God that kept messing up. And here in Leviticus, where they, they had established the priesthood, and Aaron and his sons were to, to go and, and offer sacrifices to God and offer incense to God and, and, and be mediators between God and the people to, to maintain this relationship with God because it keeps getting broken. But... If you know the story, right, Hophni and Phinehas came with strange, uh, strange fire, right? They came with a strange offering. They didn't put the incense together, right? And they died because they didn't do it. And God's point to the people of Israel is, I'm holy. You can't just come to me any way you want to. You can't come to me any way you like and say, hey, it's, it's, as long as I think this is good, God. I think you should accept this. I think you should be fine with this. Um, because I made it for you, you know. 
kind of like a child, right, who's, who's like, hey, mom, here's my picture, you know, it should be good enough, can you go put it in the Louvre, you know, and they're like, no, that's not Louvre material, you know, let's learn a few things first. But, but Jesus, God is saying, this, this is serious. This is serious enough that you need to uh, treat it as serious and understand what it means for me to be holy and you to worship me properly. And that's where we're at in the story. So in Leviticus, there's other passages that talk about what it means to worship God in a holy manner. But when in Leviticus 19, he's focusing in on that aspect of what it means in the community to love God and to, and to worship God in a holy manner. And so knowing where you are in the story is important because the story that you're in determines how you view what's going on and how you should respond. If you don't know where you're at in the story, then you, as, you, as they say, you lose the script, right? You start acting in ways that don't make sense. And so part of understanding that story, let's just kind of maybe play with this a little bit, help you understand what I'm talking about. If, if we believe that in our story, God sent his son to die on the cross for us, to rise again, and he is even now seated at the right hand of God praying for us so that in our story, as we're going through life, we're going to face hardships and difficulties, both because we are sinners ourselves, we, we're like Israel, we mess up, even though we know God. And at the same time, we live in a broken world. So the, the world is broken and we face difficulties and hardships and, and things that don't make sense because we live in a broken world. So life is hard. And in the midst of that story, what do we know? We know that God, Christ is praying for us, that God is for us, that we can walk through this story even through the hardships of life because God loves us. It's a bedrock truth that, should, that we should be able to stand on even in the darkest valleys of our lives. God loves me, right? But if you don't know where you're at in that story, you make up your own story, and you could be thinking to yourself, man, I am a failure. My kids have messed up. I've messed up. I chose the wrong career path. I'm doing this. this is, all these things are going wrong. I'm never going to get out of the, the messes I've made of my life, the mistakes I've made of my life. And you could be telling yourself, you're saying, this is where I'm at in my story. I thought I was on a trajectory up, and now I'm on this trajectory down. I'm a failure. It's ne never going to turn around. You see the difference between the two stories? And the difference in those two stories is, and where you think you are in those two stories is how you react and what you do in the midst of life. You say, why does that matter? Well, we go through life interacting with people around us. And if you're going through life saying, I've messed up, I'm a failure, there's no hope for me, and you try to care for people and interact with people, it's actually really hard <laughs> because I, I've got no resources. I've failed. I'm a loser. What can I, how can I help anyone else if I'm, I'm this failure? But if on the other hand, you're thinking, you know what? I've failed, but God loves me. God is with me. God can pick me up. God can use me even in, even in ways I can't understand then in the midst of that story, you're saying, man, the people around me, they've messed up too, they're struggling too, but I've got a little bit of what God has given me that I can share with those around me. You see the total difference in the story, right? 
So let me illustrate a little further here because we live in a world that's trying to give you stories about the world. One of those people that is trying to give you a story about the world that doesn't live anymore, his name is Karl Marx, okay? And he critiqued religion and, and the idea of what religion means. He says this in, in one of the uh, kind of an entry for someone else that was writing another book. He wrote a foreword and he said this. He said, the foundation of irreligious criticism is man makes religion. Religion does not make man. So different, totally different story here. Not that God is holy and he made us and he is, is creating us to be in a relationship with him and to walk in a certain way because of that. He's saying man has made up God, right? Man's made up God and, and whatever ways man has made up God ultimately he's going to say isn't helpful. He says that religion is indeed the self-consciousness and self-esteem of man who has either not yet won through to himself or has already lost himself again. It's like man is just this self-consciousness that isn't fully, isn't fully human yet. Man is the world of man, the state, the society. This state, this society produced religion. In that sense, he's true. Every, every system in a sense, has gods that it's worshiping. Every system has, has things that it's worshiping. He's on to say religious suffering is at, the, at one and the same time the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering, which in some senses doesn't even make sense, but that's beside the point. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of a soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. And it's the famous phrase that he used, religion is the opium of the people, okay? And his point is this, is that he's trying to say, look, he's, he cares about people, he cares about the state of the world, he sees suffering for real, and he cares about it. And if you've ever been out in the world and seen suffering, you should care about the suffering you see around you because it's real. And he's saying this, religion is this made-up way that man has made up to kind of pr provide an opium of, hey, it's going to be all right in the end, right? It's going to be all right in the end. And it, it does, in the sense he's acknowledging, that's, it provides some help in the midst of, of suffering. You know, he's not necessarily against opium. <laughs> he's like, oh, this, it'll, it's, a it's, it's giving some relief. But it's also an opium. He goes on to say, the, the abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness, to call on them to give up their illusions about their condition is to call on them to give up a condition that, requi that requires illusions. What is he saying? He's saying, hey, it'd be better if instead of creating these illusions that, that temporarily alleviate suffering, what if we really dealt with suffering? What if we really tried to deal with suffering? So he really cares about dealing with suffering, and he believes that religion doesn't really help with that. He's making this kind of this structural argument in a well, and his idea is that classes, the, the, the wealthy class for him, it was oppressing the poorer class and creating this oppression that doesn't help. And so his story is such that, hey, we all live in this, in this, in this continual struggle where rich people are oppressing poor people, and the way to really care for people is to get rid of that structure, to overthrow the governments and the things that, uh, uh, that support that structure, including religions, because when we can actually look around and really deal with suffering, then we'll be able to really care for suffering. I want you to understand his argument clearly 
because it's out in the world today and it makes sense in some ways, right? Because it's, if we look around and we say, yes, religion can be this, this help, in a sense, this, well, I don't have to deal with the real sufferings of the world because I've got hope for the future. And you should have hope for the future, but you should also deal with real suffering at the same time. And what God is saying here to us in Leviticus 19, in a sense, is, no, there's real difficulties, there's real hardships, and you should deal with those in a real way, right? He's saying, if you really want to care for people, you have to care for people as if I am holy, as if I matter, if what, as if what I am going to do in the world and what I am doing in the world really matters, and so, locating yourself in the story is really important. I'm just, again, from a Christian perspective, we would say, God loved us, we ought to love others. 1 John 4 puts it this way, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother also. So we have this choice. What story are we in? Look, you can either make up your own story and say, this is the way I think the world works. Karl Marx did that. And people believed in what he said, and they tried to set up his, his ideal, his utopia. And you know what they found? Is that the, still the rich oppress the poor. And every country that adopted his, his way of operating... It didn't solve the problem. It just replaced who was rich and who was poor. Because he didn't understand that the, there's a bigger problem at play. And God understood that the bigger problem at play is our, ourselves. We are the problem. We, we want to be on top. We want to, to love ourselves more than we want to love our neighbor. And God is saying to us, no, I'm on top, I am holy, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we're called to do. And so we locate ourselves in this story that God loves us. He sent his son to solve the real problem of the world, sin and death. And he calls us to locate ourselves in that story and say, if God loves me, this way, by sending his son for me, how can I not love my neighbor as myself? How can I not walk in that way? Because if I'm going to hate my brother and say I love God, I'm a liar. And so we need to locate ourselves in that story. And then once we've located ourselves in that story, we need to, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Point number one is knowing where we are in the story, okay? I've already done point one knowing where we are in the story. Point number two is avoid what God doesn't exalt, what doesn't exalt God's holy rule. So if God is holy and we are going to, to submit to his rule and say he's in charge, we need to live the way he wants to, then we need to avoid what doesn't exalt God's holy rule. Going back to verse 17 in Leviticus, 
You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In verse 33 again, when a sojourner, stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. We have people in our church who are strangers. That is, this is not their home, hometown. This is not the land that they grew up in. He's saying here, just like back then, you treat the stranger as yourself. How would you treat someone who's a native Iowan? Well, treat them the same way, you know, is what he's arguing for, rather than oppressing them. Now, the idea of not hating or holding grudges is against, basically, again, it's against God's holy rule. God is saying, I am the Lord, I've made everybody, I control all lands, not just Israel, and you need to treat everyone as if you're under the same, if, if, I, if you're under my rule, you're going to treat them as under his rule, and you need to bless them and encourage them because they are. But let's be honest. Our neighbors are probably the hardest people to love sometimes, right? Because they get into our stuff. They get into our business. They're close enough to, to mess with us a little bit. I mean, it's easy to leave the love the person in Texas because I never see them. You know what I mean? They're, they're just fine. If they want to be the biggest states and the, the biggest hats and have the biggest things, that, go for it. I don't care. I live in Iowa. I enjoy Iowa. It's good. You know what I mean? But when my fellow neighbor Iowan, you know, uses my stuff and then messes with it, right? Or when my fellow neighbor, neighbor Iowan does things that mess up my life, then I'm upset, right? I'm not happy. I don't like it. Because I thought I had a pretty good life without my neighbor messing it up. Holding grudges, hating others is against God. But it's easy to do when people do bad things to us. Situation happened in, in the 70s in the NBA between Rudy Tomjanovich and Kermit Washington. A fight had started in, in an NBA game. I know it never happens. No, they're so rare. No. It's rarer today than it used to be. But it's, a fight had started. They, people didn't see, see how it had started. But, um, but Rudy Tomjanovich was coming up, rushing up to break up the fight. Kermit Washington saw him out of the corner, corner of his eye, rushing up, turned around, and just clocks him in the face. He doesn't break his nose, but he breaks everything else in his face in the process. Knocked him out cold. Blood's pouring out. He said later, Rudy said later, he could taste the spinal fluid on his tongue because it was that bad got him out. He walked off the floor. He was that tough. They got him to the hospital. He was in the hospital for a while. He wore a mask and um, tried to come back and play at an NBA level again, was never able to do that. Because of what happened to him and everything else, he was never able to, to keep going in his NBA career. And you'd think, right? I mean, hey, <laughs> you're rushing up to stop a fight, you get clocked in the process. You'd think he would be angry. 
You'd think he'd be bitter. You'd think he'd be like, this guy deserves to have his NBA career ended just like mine. And he said this, I was told that not forgiving someone is like taking poison and hoping someone else would die. Not forgiving someone, holding a grudge, is like taking poison and hoping someone else will die. Do you have any grudges in your life? People that you're, you're like, I'm not willing to forgive them. It's like taking poison and hoping that other person will die. Jesus called it the tormentors. These, the things that torment our souls when we don't forgive, when we hold a grudge, when we hate someone, we're actually tormenting ourselves way more than we're ever hurting the other person. Rudy Tomjanovich and Kermit Washington reconciled. They were friends. Again, why? Because Rudy was willing to forgive Kermit for what he had done. As Christians, we go a little bit beyond that and we say, God is in control. Charles Simeon used this illustration. He said, if we take all what we know of history, let's just take the last 10 years, and let's say we illustrate that 10 years with, with everything God is doing over the last 10 years from the start over here at this door all the way to the other door. Everything God's been doing in the past 10 years. How much do we know of that, of what God is doing in the last 10 years? Probably, maybe just as much as this podium right here. We might know this much in regards to what God is doing over the last 10 years when God is doing all of this. And his point is this. If, if you only know this much about what God is doing, but this is what you know, God loves you, and you're in his story about what he is doing in the world and how he is operating in the world, then this is what you can trust and depend on, that even though you don't know everything, you know that God is love, that God is for you, that God works out even evil for good to those who love him, and you can trust that and not hold on to a grudge not hate those who are your neighbors. Isaiah 44 puts it this way, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come, what will happen. He's, he's basically saying, hey, if there's someone else out there who can be a redeemer, well, then let, then let him tell how the past and the future are going to happen. What happened in the past? What's going to happen in the future? It's like, is there someone out there who can do that? Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Isaiah 44, verse 8. There is no rock I know not any besides myself. This is what you can know. In the midst of dealing with grudges and, and hurts and problems, God is still in control. And God loves you. God loves you enough to send his son to die for you. God loves you enough to give you his Holy Spirit. God loves you enough to give you his words so you can know where you are in your story 
And if he rules, if he reigns, and if he's allowed some, some issue to come in, some, some hurt, some problem that, that causes you to respond with feelings of irritation and hurt and anger and hatred, yet God is still on his throne. He is still operating in love, and you can trust him. You can not do things that don't exalt his holy rule. We can avoid those things because he's still in control. And he is doing way more than we can ever imagine. In our own lives, in our neighbor's lives, and in our world today. And this is our hope in the midst of the the situation that's going on with Israel, right? God is still in control. He's doing things that we can't understand, even as we work to say, hey, let's stop the rockets, right? We can say with our neighbors, when we're in a conflict with our neighbor, God is still in control, and yet let's still come to peace. I'm not going to hold a grudge. I'm not going to hate. I'm going to forgive. This goes to point number three, which is share what God has given you. Share what God has given you. That's his whole point here, in a sense, in Leviticus 19, is look, I have made you my people. And if I am holy, then you need to worship me by treating one another as you would treat yourself. There's a word I've used over the years it's a great Swedish word. It's called overfluting, right? Overfluting. Yeah, the idea of overflowing. The idea is that you, God has done so much for you that it overflows out. Right? We hate it when a toilet overflows, right? It gets stuffed up and water comes pouring out like, oh, this is gross. This is... But when we don't want to overflow, we don't want to overflow with sewage, We want to overflow with God's love. We want to overflow with what God has given us. And if you get stopped up, so to speak, right, because of hatred and grudges and and hurts, all that's going to overflow out of you is, even in your best attempts, is going to be hurt and pain and anger. Jesus told a story, right, of the Good Samaritan. The religious people of his day walked by. The guy who had been beat up, mugged on the side of the road. They're like, ah, we're going to avoid this guy. Not good. And then the Samaritan came along, the one who everybody thought was worthless. And he took of what he had, his donkey, his supplies, cared for the man, brought him to an inn, paid for his stay so that he could get better. He took of what he had. And that is what God calls us to do, is not to step back from people's problems like this is, I've got things, more important things to do, I've got more, more pressing things to do, I've got, I can't deal with this mess right now. No, God calls us to step into the messes and to share what we have. Not to share what we don't have, you know. If you don't have a million bucks to solve a problem, don't use a million bucks to solve a problem, Right? but to take of what you have and to share with those around you. Again, it tells the story of the same idea in Matthew 18, right? It says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. It's well over $100 million, okay? 
And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. He didn't just owe it. It was forgiven. And when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Okay, a denarii in those days was kind of basically a day's wage. So we're talking about roughly, I realize, you know, different things, you can calculate different ways, but think of three months' wages. What would you make in three months? This man owed him that much. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his servant, fellow servant fell down, saying, and pleaded with him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went out and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all of that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Again, He's saying forgiveness is crucial if you're going to worship a holy God. And he's not saying drag it up out of yourself. He's saying if you've been forgiven much, it should be easy to forgive those who have, you need to forgive. He's not saying take, oh, I'm just going to be a good person and forgive. He's saying look at how much you've been forgiven. Look at how much. in your arrogance, in your pride, in your carelessness, in your lackadaisicalness, in your willingness to ignore people and ignore God and do whatever you please. And, the, and who cares about how it affects everyone else? And you have been forgiven of that time and time and time again by a merciful, loving God who didn't just say, I'm going to wipe it off the books. He said, I'm going to send my son, my only son, to pay that debt. That's how you've been forgiven. That's the extent to which you've been forgiven. It is an amazing, amazing gift. And if you've been forgiven like that, can you not forgive your brother? Can't you forgive your sister? That is what we are called to do, to share what God has given us. And if we've been given forgiveness, we share forgiveness. If we've been, if we've been given resources, we share resources. Now, there are a few just practical boundaries to this. Let me just help you think this through. Back in Leviticus 19, he says this. He's, every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. One of the first places you start in caring is with your own family. Not only the family that you grew up with, or the family that you create when you get married, but that kind of extended family. Revere your father and mother. Here's one of the challenges that Karl Marx had was because he wanted people to shift away from caring for family and care for the state, care for everyone. You know how hard it is to care for everyone? It doesn't work. 
God wants us to, God understands our limitations. He's like, I'm not, I'll care for everyone. You care for those around you, especially your family. Start there. Why? Because it's so important. If you can't care for your family, how can you care for anyone else? Let me just observe the results, right? If you stop caring that you and your spouse stay married together and, and work on building this family that can be this, this platform for your children to step off of and to, to know that they're cared for and they can go through life, what happens? Well, frankly, society breaks down, right? It's what happens. We see it all around us. You know what? It takes work to stay married. It takes time and effort one of the first places you have to start caring for someone is your spouse. You know what? One of the first place people you have to forgive is your spouse, right? Well, let's be honest here. Once you're married, you step on each other's toes. You do things you don't always like. You, think, you just take things for granted when you shouldn't. And you're not supposed to be like, I'm the bigger person. I'm just going to forgive them. No, you're like, God has forgiven me so much. I can forgive my spouse 70 times 7, however much it takes. Right? We start there. And then it overflows from there. And God is clear about that. Notice what it says here. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you should not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. He's like, he's, he's basically saying, hey, when you, this is an agricultural society. Basically, everybody had some kind of land or access to some kind of land to plant a garden, to, to get food. And he's saying, when you get that food, there's a few people that don't have access to land, there's a few, there, et cetera. They're not going to have food. Don't take everything. Leave the edges for the poor, et cetera, to come and, 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 and get some food for themselves. You say, well, we don't live in a agricultural society, so it doesn't apply to us. Okay. We live in a productive society, a time society. Let me just ask you the question. Do you, do you structure your lives so that you, it's all about you and how you can be productive and how you can get ahead and how you can get as much out of life as you can? Or do you structure your life so th th there are people in your life that need you to step in, to be, th be there for them? Do you structure your life to spend some time with people who, who have difficulties and heartaches and problems? Maybe they're, maybe they're poor, maybe they're not, but, but you're, you're not just spending, you're structuring your time so that all of what you want in your life gets done. You're structuring and saying, I'm going to give 5% of my time, even just 2 or 3% of my time, to, 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 to love somebody who needs loved. Do you do that? Just as we're supposed to care for our families, we are supposed to care for the greater world around us. And the, the, one of the big, biggest ways we do that is taking care of ourselves, taking care of our families, but then... Out of that platform, who are the people around me that need love? One of the greatest problems we have, frankly, in American society is we never see the people who need us. They live in different neighborhoods. They live far away. We never see them. Do you take time? You say, as a maybe as a family, we're going we're gonna to set aside parts of our time. Maybe go help out at food at first. Maybe do this. Maybe do that. But we're going we're gonna to do things that bless those who need blessed. If you believe in a holy God, 
That's what you do. You love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I want to add this idea in here. I think also that if we believe in a holy God, we also enjoy the diversity that God creates. So one of the greatest challenges we have in just caring for people is realizing that people are different from us. And sometimes we don't like that, right? I I wish everybody had my personality. I mean, it's something people could say, right? But actually, we don't really believe that because it's not very much fun if everyone has the same personality. You get that, right? We had a wedding, the the balls. uh, Ben and Ava got married, right? And I was sitting with John and Becky Rieger and Alan and Camille Clegg and Lauren and and Kristen Vanderweide and all different personalities. And it was a lot of fun, right? We could talk about a lot of different things. Most of them were ahead of where I am in life, and I, I observed how certain things go, you know what I mean? So I'm preparing for a wedding coming up, weddings coming up, because they are in that process too. I'm like thinking, okay. So, so I, I've just kind of this, got this thing going on where, you know, they, had, they have dancing going on, and my wife is always on me. He's like, you got to learn how to dance. So, so I'm just going to just, you, you got to help me out here because I've got a few dances that I want to try out eventually, but I'm not sure they're going to work out. So the first one, the first one is just the chicken dance, right? I'm going to go like this, you know? You got to tell me if that's a good dance or, you know, maybe just the whole, you know, like, kind of like, you know, style. You know, or maybe, maybe just the whole crazy, like, you know? Mostly this is a, a way for my daughters not to get me out on the dance floor, you know, in the future. But the point is, is that we, we, that we were sharing what we had at the wedding. We were sharing in the joy that we had. And frankly, enjoying the diversity of different ways of dancing, different ways of just engaging with life, different ways of working through life. We should enjoy that. Part of caring for people is enjoying who God has made them to be. And enjoying that in such a way that you can be like, you know what, you're in this situation in life and that situation in life. You know what, that's, I'm going to help out as where I can. But it's just great to know you. It's great to, to, to walk with you. It's great to, to enjoy life together. Why? Because God is holy. And he made us to live as his people enjoying his world, caring for people in need because it's a great and marvelous world to live in. And ultimately one day we're going to stand before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he's going to say, how did you live under my rule and how did you treat the other people under my rule? And we're going to have to answer. And the biggest way that we can do that with the gospel is we can think about who do we need to forgive? Who do we need to not hold grudges with? Who do we need to step back from the, the, the personality or the, the hurt that we've had and say, you know what, I've been forgiven so much, I'm going to share of the forgiveness I've received from God with that person. And I'm going to share resources and I'm going to share joy and I'm going to share life because I've been given so much by God. Paul puts it this way. 2 Corinthians 9, he says, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, 
For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you, having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. God has given you so much. Do you know it? Have you rejoiced in it? Have you shared it? Because he is a holy God. He wants us to share it. He gives us things so that we can give it to other people. We are the church. We are supposed to be caring. So let's be about it. Let's share what God has given us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for joy. I thank you for the joy of knowing you and of going through life knowing you, knowing that you love me. You love everyone here. You have sent your son, Jesus, to die for everyone here so that those who come by faith to you might know your joy, might know your forgiveness, and might be able to share that with the world around them. Lord, I pray that we would be known as a caring church, sharing what God has given us in joy with those around us. Lord, Sometimes it takes restructuring our time. Sometimes it takes restructuring our focus. But hey, may we really locate ourselves in your story, that you love us, that you, even in the midst of the heartaches and difficulties of life, are working good in us and through us. And may we trust you and share what you've given us to your glory and honor, because you are God and there is no other. We thank you in your son's name. Amen.